How you guys doing this morning? Doing all right? Well, I am excited to be back. Thank you. I want to first of all thank um, the leadership of Blueprint and even you as family. Um, me and my wife and I, we just got back off of sabbatical. It was actually the first time that I would say that I actually took a real sabbatical. And it was something that um, very encouraging. God kind of orchestrated it um, through a, a series of events, um, through COVID and through other lots of various things that, you know, we were forced. So literally, um, I was on sabbatical for about, um, for about eight weeks. And literally, um, seven out of the eight weeks, we were gone somewhere. You know, and just it was just a series of things that have come back. And so, you know, one of the things, thanks to Ben and, um, and others, um, one of the things that we just went in was just really looking for God to give a sense of rest, um, a sense of restoration and a sense of just renewed calling. And I really feel like God has met me in all of those things and just really refreshed and ready to get back in the race. And so I'm just really excited about being here. And, you know, one day and throughout the um, a lifetime of sermons that um, I will be sharing bits and pieces of all of what God um, did and some of the beautiful sights and some of the re- replenishing things, but this is not what we're here today to do. Um, so I'm just really excited about coming here today. But if you have your Bible today, we're going to be kicking off a new series. Um, the, the series that we're going to be talking about is a roadmap to repentance. And as Mitchell said earlier, what we're ultimately trying to do is we're kind of setting our, our hearts, getting our hearts, getting our minds right as we enter into the DNA series, which many of you already know is my, always my favorite time of the year. It's a time where we get a chance to reestablish both who we are in light of who God is, and we can get to cultivate some, some relationships. And so I'm really excited about that. But today and next week, we're going to be looking at um, what, we look, what we call oftentimes the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And, but before we get to the Beatitudes, I want to just kind of frame the Beatitudes with a verse that I think is significant if we're going to properly understand the heart's posture that we have when we come into the Beatitudes. And I'm actually going to use that verse as the verse that's going to frame the message today. And then we'll end kind of with the, um, unpacking the first four of the Beatitudes. Um, the German priest, Martin Luther, I want to start with, with him. Um, Many of you know that he is famous for writing um, the 95 Theses. It's really what has started and sparked the whole Protestant movements. We are Protestants. We're not, um, for many of us, we're, we're Protestants. We're not Catholics because um, the Protestant movement was a, literally uh, um, started with a protest from um, from the Catholic Church. And that protest began with the 95 Theses in Um, in 1517, when he wrote that, he primarily wrote the 95 Theses in protest against the selling of indulgences, the selling of indulgences. When he nailed that document on the door at Wittenberg Church, many thought and believed that Martin, Martin Luther wasn't writing that to start this worldwide protest. He was really trying to spark up local debate that was going forth in his local church. You see, Luther felt that the selling, specifically the selling of indulgences, um, was, a, was promoted a way of living that was sanctioning um, something that the scriptures weren't. And, you know, and so this, the, the way that the church was handling, the way that the church was ministering, it was sanctioning something that the scriptures weren't. You see, the selling of indulgences was a tax on um, church parishioners. And that tax was basically fattening the pockets of both the local church, of the church, and the government officials. 
You see, but the problem didn't stop there. And, and, and oftentimes, many of us, we stop with just simply kind of the protest that Martin Luther um, was protesting the church. He was protesting um, the government in the time. Um, and we stopped there, but I really think that we miss ultimately a, a, a huge chunk of what the re, of the reason of what he was doing there. Yes, he was protesting the systems. You see, because many of us we love like he was protesting the man, he was protesting the institution, he was protesting. He had problems with um, kind of the institution or the corporation, and we love that type of story. You see, but the problem oftentimes that we miss is that even though he was protesting. Um, against some of the teachings of the church, he was also um, protesting what the impact of that, of that was having on the individual soul. The impact that it was having on its parishioners. You see, you got to recognize something, that the selling of indulgences was, um, it sanctioned what I would consider a sinful life, and I believe what he considered, and it weakened the conscience. It weakened the conscience of taking personal responsibility, taking personal responsibility. You see, if you don't know, I'll just give you a brief kind of oversimplification of what the, self, the selling of indulgences was. It, was. it was happens when anyone could live basically their best life today, right, while they were alive today because their family was able to bail them out later, right? If you can live any way now, because later on, my family can bail me out tomorrow because what the indulgences was is that once you, a loved one died, you would then pay taxes to get them out of purgatory. And it was a way to get them out of kind of this middle ground um, they, that they created called purgatory. And see, when Martin Luther, even though in the 95 Theses, he addressed many other things than just simply the selling of indulgences, but he believed that the, in the racket of indulgences was the most pressing of something that was what he would consider an oppressive system. You see, but the oppressive system is not kind of oppressing, oppression in just simply the way that we talk about oppression, um, but his oppression was a spiritual oppression. It was an oppression of the individual. It was oppression of the mind. Um, you see, what was going on is that this teaching that um, he had allowed the church the ability both to get paid, but it also eliminated the need for the church to call anyone to repent. There was no need any longer to call any individual to repent. You see, the selling of these indulgences gave people a way out of having to process their individual lives. That, you know, because regardless of you are a devout or whether you just live in your best life, the bottom line is that there was this thing, there was this guilt that was put on you to make sure that your loved ones wasn't in purgatory. Make sure. And so ultimately, I believe that because of the self, the servants of indulgence, because the church kind of re, um, retracted from this idea of even having to consider or to process, that it really comes down to this, really, this reality is that an unrepentant life is an unreflective life. An unrepentant life is an unreflective life. You see, his concern was just as pastoral as it was theological. He felt that what the Catholic Church was doing, it was promoting a compartmentalized life. 
It was promoting a compromised Christianity. You see, and the reason why I know that he was really emphasizing in, in, um, repentance was an important thing because he himself begins the 95 Theses with this statement. He says this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, and oftentimes we miss all of the point in which he started off all of his, all of the 95 theses of his Protestant with this, this call for the believers to repent holistically. Martin Luther goes on and he says, Martin Luther began not with simply an accusation of the church or an accusation of people, but Martin Luther be, um, began with an invitation to repentance. You see, because Martin Luther believed that the Christian life is marked, is a life that's marked with repentance. The Christian life is a life that's marked with repentance. Some of you guys are right now because of trauma of your past and just misconceptions and misuse of the word repentance is already kind of, um, you know, squirming in our seats because oftentimes when we think about repent, we think about the, the person yelling at you, you know, from on mountaintops or a person yelling at you at the quad or a person yelling at you at some place on the street corner, you know, and doing that. But there are some of the misconceptions that we often embrace, we often think about with this idea of repentance. And really, when we talk about a roadmap to repentance, it's important that we understand repentance and what repentance is not and what repentance is. What repentance is. You see, you got to understand repentance is not simply saying I'm sorry. Repentance is not just simply, you know, and let me just say this. My kids are really good. If my kids are in here, my, my kids are really good at this. You know, it's, you know, those times when we say, you know, say sorry to your brother. Sorry. And then, you know, just kind of like repentance is not just simply saying I'm sorry. Repentance is also not just trying to say it so that you can get, get beyond it. You know, I'm really good at this. You know, whenever my wife and I is like, I'm sorry, can we move on now? Right? It's just like, it's when we just simply say, like, it's one of those things. So it's not just simply saying, I'm sorry. It's not just saying it so we can get things behind us. It's not simply regretting what happened, where we just put things, you know, it's just like we're sorry for the impact of the sin. We're, we're sorry for the consequences of it, but we're not grieving the actual sin, right? We're sorry what it did and the impact that it had. But repentance is also not this feeling where we're trying to make someone feel toxic shame, where we keep on pressing in until we get a feeling out of you, when we get a, a certain kind of remorse that satisfies me, right? It's not about even us feeling this toxic shame, or it's not even about us trying to coerce it out of others. You see, re repentance is not simply behavior modification. It's not just, you know, repentance doesn't just simply equal penance. Just doing some things that you did something wrong, go do, go sing or go um, do a certain activity in order to feel better about yourself. You see, repentance isn't about only repenting from the bad things either. Hopefully today we'll get to understand just the importance of why we need this thing this word that is biblical, that has been often been missed, that has often been abused, that has often been misused, is this call 
for the believer to repent. And so basically what we've done is that I've broken up this sermon into three parts. In the three parts we see in the very essence of what comes out in Jesus immediately after his baptism, immediately after his wilderness experience, immediately after him getting away, he begins his public ministry. And the Bible tells us, (coughs) excuse me, the Bible tells us that he, in verse 17, he says this, it says, from then on, Jesus began to preach. And you know what his message is? Repent. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the question that you and I have to wonder about, because as we look at this passage, is how does a church, how does a church, or what does a church look like when we seek to bring God's kingdom, or we look at God's kingdom in light of a broken world? And so in this passage, I want you to kind of look at this section in three kind of categories or three sections and then we're going to come back and we're going to um, look and find or land the plane in the, the first of the four Beatitudes. The first of the four Beatitudes. The first section when it, when it says, it says, from then on, Jesus. From then on, Jesus. The second section, Jesus began to preach. That's the second section. And then the third part of this is because the kingdom of heaven is come, has come near, right? And so let's start off with that first section and let's unpack it a little bit. In verse 17, it says, from then on, from then on. You see, this section right here, you know, is really mentioned twice in the book of Matthew. And if you're not careful, you will just quickly skip over the, um, this and you would just think, oh, this is some transitional phrases. But it's only mentioned right here in Matthew chapter 4, 17. And the other time it's mentioned is in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach about how he must go back to Jerusalem. You see, in the book of Matthew, there's two significant shifts that we see. Is that one is right here is where you see the life of the, or the, the ministry of Jesus beginning. And then you see the later is when you see the passion of the Christ, where he must go to Jerusalem to go and to die on the cross. And what we see is that in these two is that we're, as, as readers and listeners, we ought to stop and to reflect and understand what's going on here. You see, and so right here, like if you understood the context of what's going on, that here in Matthew is obviously, Matthew chapter four is after Matthew chapter three. So the question becomes is what happened in Matthew chapter three? Well, in Matthew chapter three was some of the greatest moments in human history and some of the lowest points that we see in the ministry in the life of Jesus, right? One of the greatest moments is that we see God breaking 400 years of silence and basically coming down at Jesus's baptism and he's saying, this is my son in which I'm very well, in which I'm pleased. And that we see God speaking, that you got to understand that after 400 years, God went silent, that he hasn't really spoken. He hasn't spoken ever since Malachi when, he, when people, he was just like, forget it, I'm done with you. The next voice you're going to hear is that of John the Baptist or that of Elijah crying in the wilderness. And so 400 years later, we break. And what we see is when God's not speaking, what we end up getting is religion. 
And so people become their modern tower, um, modern day towers of Babel, and because they try to work their way up to God, that if you notice what happened to the sacrifices, what happened to the, 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 what was going on in the, New, in the Old Testament, that all of a sudden when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we got all these sects, we got all these divisions, we got Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, we got all these denominations and all these people all trying to make their way up to God. And God breaks his silence and he says, this is my son. This is who I'm pleased. And after we get this monumental time that we see in the life of Jesus, we immediately go in with a very shocking kind of plot twist. A very shocking plot twist because immediately after one of the greatest moments in human history, God breaking his silence, saying what we have been talking about since the Proto-Evangelion, since sin first entered into the world in the first gospel, that I'm finally bringing the anticipation is over and he's here. What we see is that the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He led Jesus into the wilderness. You see, but one of the things that we overlook is not only did he lead Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted, you know, we know that he was tempted three times in the wilderness by Satan. God did not tempt him, but he led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And while he was in the wilderness, we know that Jesus, again, depended on the word of God, trusted um, and then that the angels at the end came and ministered to him. So you would think, okay, that's enough, right? You put me through the test. I'm ready to go. But immediately after, and this is oftentimes what we overlook, immediately after that, we see in um, Matthew chapter 4 and 12 that Jesus comes out and finds out that his cousin, his running mate, has been put into prison, that he's been locked up. And it was one of those things that it was like, or oh, when it rains, it pours, and we're seeing time after time, I just went through a wilderness experience and now I'm done with the wilderness experience and now I come up and I hear my man is locked up for preaching the same message, preaching the same gospel that I'm about to be preaching. And so what we see is that what we see is the pain that often comes with the wilderness experience. And, and we all know that in, when we talk about wilderness life, like the wilderness journey, it's either you are just getting out of a wilderness, you are in the wilderness, or you're heading to a wilderness, right? And it's when, whenever you have that, that mentality, there's this like this fog on you that oftentimes leads you to do things that you're not characterized that's uncharacteristic of you. I was just got a chance to go when I was in New Orleans. And my time in New Orleans was real good. But I was just getting a chance to talk to some of the pastors and leaders there. And it was just really insightful to see just kind of right now, like the murder rate is up in New Orleans and just crime is up and things are up. And just like a lot of stuff that's going on in New Orleans right now. And, you know, and I love New Orleans. My dad's from New Orleans. Family's from New Orleans. And so much like there's this heart gravitational pull towards New Orleans. But one of the things that he, he kind of accredited, he says, like, people in New Orleans kind of live under this, like, this wilderness this kind of this dark cloud is like they, they feel like at any time the next flood is going to happen. He was just driving around. He says, you, you didn't know, but like that part of that part, this whole street was underwater just two days ago. And he was just talking about this. It's like there's this anticipation that something bad is about to happen. And there's this, this dark cloud that's over them. And there's this kind of this anticipation that is going. And so here he is, Jesus, immediately after 40 days being led by um, 
led into the, the fortress, being tempted by God. He comes out, his, his man is locked up, and then what we see is Jesus. He gets away, but then he comes out and he begins to preach. And you know what, and you know what his message is? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is there. So we're first to look at this first section and where it says, <coughs> from then on, from that point, that this is a significant shift in the life of Jesus as he goes. You see, but the problem is, is that oftentimes when we think about the word repentance, repentance has gotten a bad rap because we have a wrong understanding of what sin is, of what sin is. So just real quick, um, when we think about this idea of sin, there's two primary words that's used when it comes to the word sin. One in the Old Testament and the other in the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, there's the word that is called kata. And that word just simply means to fail or to miss the mark, to miss the mark. It's, a, it's, it's ultimately a failure to miss your goal. And so it's like the idea if you were to take a bow and arrow and you was to shoot, and if it didn't hit the bullseye, they would yell kata, or they would yell sin, which means you've missed the mark. You've missed the point of the point of your intended target. And so they would say sin. They would say kata. So the question becomes is when we look at the old whole of scriptures, what is the goal of the believer? The goal of the believer is real simple. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We see it in Matthew chapter 22 that the goal of the believer is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Paul goes as far as to say that, that all that all of his preaching, all of his teaching is simply aimed at that we would fall more in love with God, that we would love God with a pure heart, a sincere faith, a clear conscience. And so we talk about this is our aim. And so what we see right here is that when we sin is when we fail at loving God and loving other people. It's when we miss the mark. And this is the reason why the earliest notion that we see that word kata is when we see the, what the, the idea of um, in, with the Cain and Abel is the first mentioning of the word kata. It's not the first sin, but it's the first mention of that word kata. And basically he says kata is at your door. It's there. It's seeking to take over you. It's seeking like this, this idea. And it's when we understand that when we miss the point of loving God and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so this idea of missing the mark is the sin or the failure that we often do, a failure to love God, a failure to love others by not treating them with the same respect or the same dignity that they have. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We see this in the Ten Commandments that, that again, there, these are re relationship rules that the first four just talk about how we love God properly. And the last six just talks about how we love our neighbors. But it's when we kata, when we sin, we miss that mark. And so as he's talking about, we, <coughs> we begin to justify and this is why sin, kata, is crouching on the door. So the first meaning is just simply kata. 
But he doesn't stop there. The New Testament takes that word kata and it kind of adds a little bit. Paul comes and he uses a word when we talk about sin is harmartia. Harmartia and basically harmartia simply means to rule over or to have power. Paul goes on and says that sin, I am enslaved by sin. That this is, the, this is a power or a force that rules over us as humans. You see, and the problem is, is that when we understand that the goal, that Christianity is simple in its message, that we are just simply called to love God and love man, but it's supernatural in its application and that we can't do it on ourselves by ourselves, what we end up doing is that we, um, we allow sin to even deceive us. And this is what Paul comes to the conclusion in Romans chapter 7. He says, even the things I want to do, I find myself not doing. Even the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the time. He says, so I've just come to the conclusion, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And what we see throughout when it comes to this idea of sin is that we see a reality that takes place of this separation or this division that in our lives that we all recognize the gospel, Right? And there's a diagram you guys have seen, kind of the bridge. And in this diagram, we see this idea of kind of you have God on the top and you got man on the bottom. And we know that it's none of our works. Nothing can kind of bridge that gap. We can't cross, but the only the, the, the cross of Christ can bridge the gap between God and man. There's a God-sized void ever since Job. Job was talking about, I need a mediator between us, the, the distance between me and God. For believers, we recognize that we, that we say, forget it. We can't measure up to God. We can never meet the standard of God, right? And so, but the problem is that oftentimes we get saved by grace, but we try to keep it with the law. It's like we get saved by grace, but then as soon as that comes, it's like there's a reality that comes that God is the only one that we press into him, that he, be, he recognize that he is actually more holy than we ever first imagined. For the rest of us, you get a chance to meet me, you get close, you ask my wife, you talk to my wife, you recognize, oh, he's not all that. He's really got a lot of issues, right? But when we get closer to God, we find out, oh man, he's more holy. He's more perfect, than I thought when I first imagined. But then there's another reality that we come, that not only is he more holy, we recognize that I'm more sinful than I thought. You see, first, when we first got saved, we was just like, I gotta get rid of the bad things. I gotta stop like cussing and drinking and duh, you know, it's just like the big things, sleeping around. Like if I can stop doing those things, then things will be good. But the problem is, is that even if we are successful at doing that, what we end up finding is the reason why we're doing even the good things is bad. And Keller, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, basically says, not only do we need to repent for the bad things that we do, but we need to repent for the reason why we do the good things. Because even in that, I'm doing it for selfish motives and selfish ambition. And this is what we recognize is that in the Christian life, that in my sanctification, we see God is more holy and I'm more sinful. But the problem is, is that our view of our sin or our view of, our, of the cross doesn't change and our view of Christ remains the same. And you see it just, but we start filling this gap. We start filling this distance. And so what do we do? We, we start doing more things and we start doing whatever our ism is, right? I got to study more. I got to do more. 
whether it's asceticism or legalism or emotionalism or mysticism or I just think the encounter guy, like we put our ism there to try to bridge that gap. You see, but the, the problem is, is that God is not saying that like, hey, okay, I got this thing started. Now I need you to kind of keep it going. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter two, it says, in the same way you received Christ, walk in him. Walk in him. How do we receive him? It's by grace, through faith. It's a gift of God, not of ourselves, so that no man could boast. So he says, how do we walk with him? Is it in that same way? And it's in that same way. So we recognize that we don't understand what what scholars and theologians have called the total depravity of man. That we cannot overcome. We cannot meet the standard and the problem that sin has, the grip that sin has in our lives. (laughs) We cannot. And this is why when we talk about this idea of man being sinful and God being holy, that the only way that we bridge that gap, the only way is through the understanding who Christ is and understanding that he's bigger than I first imagined. And that this type of life doesn't lead me to a life of depression. It leads me to a life of dependence. That it's only Christ. What he did was even greater than what I first imagined and what I first thought. So what am I saying? When it comes to our sin, right? When it comes to our shortcomings, when it comes to our falling, God's desired response to sin is repentance. God's desired response to sin is repentance. You see, for someone who understands how bad off we are, repent is good news to us. Because we recognize that I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've tried to get my life right. I tried, you know, this thing of he loves me when I'm doing good. He loves me not when I'm doing bad. He loves me when I'm doing good. And I said, I just found myself when I even take on that. I feel like he loves me less than because it's, it's dependent on me. But God's desired response is repent. And so when we look at the word repent, it's both about the perspective that we have with our sin, but it's also dealing with the problem that we have when it comes to sin. And so this is where Jesus says, from then on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he repeat his preach? He preached the same message that Martin Luther started with. He preached the same message that John the Baptist started with in Matthew chapter three. That message was repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when, and when our Jesus said repent, basically he called for the entire life of believers to be marked as one of repentance because he understood that the Christian life is a life <coughs> that's marked with repentance. Sorry. All right. So what is repentance then? What is repentance? It's a couple of things. Again, going back to some of the Hebrew and Greek, there's three words that ultimately we see when it comes to repentance. One is the first word, this is a word called nakam. And it's basically the idea, nakam is a strong desire to change, right? This, this is the Old Testament word that we see. Another one is, the, is shub, not shrub, but shub, 
right? Shub is basically, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind. And in the Bible, biblically, it basically means to change our mind, specifically around um, our, our, our areas of sin, our kind of a lifestyle. But then in the New Testament, basically, um, the word that it used is metanoia, metanoia. And metanoia simply means to change the way we think. To change the way we think, it's to change our purpose, it's the change of, of our action. But at the core of the word metanoia, this simply means to change. And if you notice in all of them, whether it's nakam or shub or metanoia, that ultimately he says change. So when this call, when Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, basically he's saying that we as believers, we need to change the way we see God's kingdom. You see, every other religion tells us to try harder, to do better, that to build our ladders up to God, to perform, and maybe God will be merciful on you. You see, the Bible tells us a totally different thing. It says that that's not the way Yahweh, that's not the way our king does it. He doesn't tell us to look at his kingdom that way. He calls us to repent. So he first tells us to deal with our perspective, our perspective. Change the way we see God. Change the way we see his kingdom. Change the way we walk. You see, repentance has a few core components to it. One is this idea of confession. This idea of just simply, what, what does it mean to confess? The only way true repentance comes, and the reason why Martin Luther had problems at the beginning with, uh, when the, with indulgences, is that this idea of confession, confession is uh, the way I define it, is a willingness to tell the truth about what's going on inside. Tell the truth, fess up. Right? You see, but when we don't want to take personal responsibility, when we want to just blame everything on the government or problems, you know, we, we take this passive approach. What the first Adam took, right? It was the woman you gave me. It's the spouse you gave me. It's the government you gave me. It's the system you gave me. There's always a problem with everything else that is causing me to be what I'm doing, but instead I'm not having to reflect that maybe, just maybe, I may be the problem. And I need to change the way I think about myself. I need to change the way I see others. I need to change the way I see God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So not only does this idea of repent, <coughs> repent is simply telling the truth about what's going on inside. But as I was saying, repentance is a call to change. Changing the way we see God, changing the way we see people. But, but finally, when I think about this idea of repentance, it's both to confess, it's both to change, but finally, it's, it's our call to cling. It's God's kingdom that's at hand. You see, I think it's critical for us in this season, for leaders in this season, to stop clinging to our philosophies, stop clinging to our worldviews, to stop clinging to, you know, whatever this person said, or to stop thinking, like, and cling to Jesus. Cling to his way. Cling to him. He says, repent. I'm here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
You see, when, when he says this, that we all, we recognize that not only do we confess, not only do we change, but we cling. But when we do it, that we need to cling, we need to confess, we need to change the way we see Jesus. We need to confess, we need to change, we need to cling the way we see even Christianity. We need to cling, we need to confess, we need to change the way and realign ourselves to the person and to the work of Christ. We need to understand that this, this idea and this call when Jesus says is not the same tone that oftentimes it is. He's not this mad, angry person. But there's actually repentance is not this, this, this charge or this command. It's, a, it's actually an invitation. It's an, <coughs> it's an invitation to everyone. But we, Jesus also recognized that it's a prerequisite to salvation. It's a prerequisite to having a relationship with them. But he also recognized that repentance is not a one-time thing, it's a lifestyle. And this is the reason why when he talks about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christian life must be marked with repentance. So the next time someone tells you to repent, don't flee, don't run, embrace it. Because God is inviting you to not put it all the weight on yourself, but to trust him, to cling to him, to change the way we see him. And so we see this invitation that God has to his people and this call to repent. We see that, but not only as the Bible tells us, are we to just simply confess, but we are to produce the fruit of repentance. And this is the, the final section where he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this in this last five minutes, basically what I want to bring us home with in which we'll start today and we'll end next week is just because I really believe there's a roadmap. God, Jesus doesn't just say repent and then go and says go on your merry way. But I really believe that not only um, the Sermon on the Mount is where he sits down and he, he sits down with his disciples and he says, hey, you guys, like he begins to, to preach. And that the whole Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is, I believe is a roadmap that God gives us of what a life marked with repentance is. How do, we, how do we live a life that's marked with repentance and not religiosity? And he says, there's a certain brand out right now. There's a certain religious way of doing things. But, you know, and that's why throughout the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, he says, they say, but I say. They say, but I say. You see, what he's constantly doing is that he's changing. He's challenging. He's inviting people to change the way. You see God, change the way you see yourselves, change. And it's this invitation that he has. <clears throat> so what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us what the kingdom is actually like. He gives us this roadmap. He sits them down, he sits everybody down, and then he began to teach them saying, and this is where we get the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is kind of the, the acorn. The rest becomes the trees. Like, is these, these, these bite-sized pieces is of, of what he's kind of explaining. And these are kind of like, you know, if you're on a road trip, like the mile markers that you have that know how close that you're getting. And, and so we see this. And what we see in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, for they will be filled. You see, Jesus gives us this roadmap on what repentance looks like. He gives us these mile markers that after we, we confess, we tell the truth of where we are, after we change the way we see God and see one another, after we cling to the person and work of the cross, what we see is that he says, okay, this is what it looks like. It looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like mourning. It looks like being humbled. It looks like hungering and thirst. These are all words that you and I would not choose as our preferred desire, or our preferred destination of how to get anywhere. And what he does is that he, he takes kind of what many times, he takes the religiosity of the people and he kind of flips it on its hand because you would think that those that are strong in God would be strong in every area of life. But he says, no, it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. And God tells us and he gives us this roadmap of his kingdom that's about a people whose hearts belong to him, right? It's about a people whose hearts are repentant. And so what does that look like? He says, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. You see, those who live, whose life is marked with the life of repentance come in and they recognize that I have little to no control over my wilderness. I have little to no control. And every time I try, I take one step forward and I take three steps back. And then it is, and when we recognize the, the reality that I'm spiritually bankrupt when it comes to God's economy, that I don't have, even my best works are considered filthy rags to God, that I fall short. And we're not just talking about in our salvation, but we're talking about in our sanctification, in our process of becoming more like him, that we are broke. You see, all of us, we recognize this reality because I know even some of you guys are like, oh man, he got COVID, he up there coughing and things, right? Because you see, because the reality is, is that we recognize how much control we don't have. Because again, a couple of years ago, we thought we were like two weeks, two weeks vacation. We're done, we'll be right back in this thing. And now here we are. And with all the news waves and the news channels are saying there's a new variant coming out. And we're like, here we go again. I ain't going back to quarantine. And I, you know, whatever it is, but we find out how little we are, how little control that we have. And when we, when we embrace that reality that we are spiritually bankrupt, whether we go into a wilderness or not, what we recognize is that Jesus, what he says is that blessed are the poor in spirit, but also blessed are those who mourn. That's sad. He says we, this is not something that we ought to celebrate, being spiritually bankrupt. No, we grieve that. We, we're sad about that. So blessed are those who mourn the fact that we're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who embrace their humanity. You see, it's one of those things that we recognize that, we, that he comes to the conclusion is like, blessed are those who recognize that we are not God. And when we recognize that we're not God, God is like, good, you be human and let me be God. You're terrible at being God, but you can be great at being human. 
So when you recognize and when you embrace that you're spiritually bankrupt and when you learn that grieving is hard, it sucks, but it's something that God gives us to confess, to tell the truth about where we are, that we then be able to embrace our humanity. Blessed are the humble, blessed are those who sober-minded, that we are both fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also broken. You see it? In this, he basically lays out this roadmap. He's like, I don't want to get on that road trip to be broken, to be grieving, to, to constantly think about my limitations. But not only that, he leaves us in this, this, this beatitude that kind of focuses on our need Godwards to him. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, a repentant life, those who change and those who embrace the, the journey that God has us on are those who fight to keep hungering for God's will to be done. Think about it. We're bankrupt. We're grieving. We're embracing our limitations, but I'm going to keep hungering. I'm going to keep thirsting for God's will to be done. I'm not going to just give in. I'm not just going to throw in the towel. And see, the reality is, is that as we hunger and we thirst, if we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what is righteousness? Righteousness is simply God's will, God's way. We're hungering and thirsting. And when you hunger and you thirst, your hunger, your thirst is never going to be satiated in this life. So the question, are you going to give up? Or are you going to keep going? You see, God's economy is different. He says, you're broken, you're grieving, you're limited, but I still got plans. Keep pressing, keep hungering, right? And what we do is we constantly put ourselves in a perpetual state that the disciples learned in a very tangible way later on when Jesus, when they was just like, hey, we got all this fish, we got all, I mean, we got all these people, we got to send them back so they get something to eat. He was just like, you feed them. He was just like, well, Jesus, we only got a few fish and a few loaves. We don't have within our self what it takes to give to people what they need. We don't have it. He says, you give them something to eat. And what do they do? They take the little that they have and they take it to Jesus and Jesus makes much of himself. You see, the goal of a Christian, the life of a Christian is marked by repentance. You see, and that should be good news to us because God is like, he's hardwired. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on us trusting him, leaning into him embracing him, embracing the journey, even though it's hard, it's for our good. And so as we are on this journey, we must recognize and we must believe not just the first half of those beatitudes, but we also believe the second, that even though we're poor in spirit, he says the kingdom of heaven, it will be ours. Even though we mourn, the Bible tells us he will comfort us. Even though we are humbled, we will inherit the earth. Even though we're hungering and we're thirsting for righteousness, one day on the other side, we will be filled. And this is the conclusion that Paul says. He was just like this momentary affliction. This momentary affliction is just that. It's a moment. It's a moment. And it's well worth 
what we're going to walk into. So saints, blueprint, keep hungering, keep thirsting, keep pressing. God's will be done. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.